Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. On January 21st, 2015, I sat down with Miranda July to discuss her new novel, The First Bad Man, which has now popped up on several best of the year lists, as well as the rest of her career, which includes film, fiction, monologues, digital media presentations, and live performance art. This extended version of the interview runs over 15 minutes longer than what aired on KPFA, Pacifica, and in the BookWaves podcast. Welcome to BookWaves. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Miranda July, who has a novel, The First Bad Men. Miranda July is the author of four books, It Chooses You, Looking to Love You More, and a collection of short stories, No One Belongs Here More Than You. She's also the director of two feature-length films, You, Me, and Everyone We Know, and The Future, several short subjects, and the creator of an app called Somebody. Well, I guess the, the main thing to understand about Miranda July is that she's basically a performance artist. and. When I look at you, I see someone who is a performance artist who works in many, many different fields. Right. I can sort of see that in the the sense that there are writers, writer-directors, but not that many people who are willing to sit at a desk for years also want to be on stage kind of winging it, you know? And that is something that I, I never let go of. I mean, I have a new performance that I'll do in April in, in San Francisco, I'll never make any money from that. No one cares if, really if I do another performance. You know, it's just something I do for myself. So clearly it is, it kind of anchors all the other work in a purely creative base, you know, and, and it's the form that I'm freest in. I mean, it's not really reviewed. There's not like a critical backlash or anything. Well, it also seems by working in different fields, you're never ever going to get bored. Right? I mean, it's so, it's so genius. And when you're done with a book, you don't have to think like, well, how am I going to top that? You're not comparing your next thing to your last thing because it's just a brand new medium. You can kind of feel like a beginner again. The first Bad Men, what prompted you, Miranda July, to write a novel? Nothing that interesting. I mean, I think everyone who has a debut collection of short stories is is asked many times, will you write a novel? And I always thought, yeah, like, I'll try that. Can it really be any harder than making a movie? So I had that in mind and was sort of waiting for the right kind of idea. And and the, the idea for this book, after a long wait, came kind of all at once. Like these two characters, Cheryl and Clee, I wrote down on a single page of notes, like what the framework of the whole book would be, that this this relationship that kind of has many incarnations. At that point, you knew it would be a novel. You were not thinking film. Right. I knew that, but I had also just finished The Future, my my last movie. And it is sometimes hard to make the transition. Like, I remember 
talking to my husband saying like, well, do you think Scarlett Johansson is too old to play Klee? And then it's like, what? Like, there will be no <laughs> movie star playing Klee. You will just describe Klee, and that's it. You also made a choice, and from what I can see in your short stories and in the novel and to some degree in You, Me, and Everyone We Know, though there are multiple characters and multiple points of view, it's mostly first person. I mean, the character you play in You, Me, and Everyone We Know very much is the voice of the of the film. And then we right. look at this and we see first person. Right. I know. It's funny. I just remembered that I didn't start out that way with this book. I just really? I, I just remember that right now. And I'm trying to remember the whole what triggered that. I, I remember talking with the writer Sheila Hetty, who's very much writing from a, a first person that is her, more or less herself. And maybe I was influenced by her, although this is not at all myself. But I remember changing from she to I. And the way I did it was just using the find change option in the computer, which mostly worked. And for some reason, she was like scandalized that I didn't do it manually. Like it seemed like somehow on a on a psychic level, you should have to you should have to make all the changes by hand. It's kind of interesting that way, because one thing about Cheryl Glickman is that She's sort of an unreliable narrator. Right. So if it was in the third person, an unreliable narrator, even close third person, still doesn't feel quite right. Right. I know. Well, yeah, I wasn't into the book yet. I mean, it's – I think I blocked that out because I don't want to ever remember a time (laughs) when I was, you know, not on top of it. But, of course, there was quite a long time. I mean, that's that's the sort of endurance test is with a novel. When you're working on a novel or a screenplay, I mean, you mentioned before that you had your notes beforehand. How thought out are these before you actually sit down and get to the nitty gritty? With any project, it's like I'll have an idea. It's always seems so exciting at first. And then I walk around knowing like it, it might have a false bottom, like it might not be that deep. And then I see over the next few months, like, can I accrue enough, like, density of notes, like, which which are just things that I'm thinking as I do other things. Like, as I'm on this tour, I'm thinking about other projects and taking little notes. And if I can get enough of them, then I think this this has something. You know, I could do this for years. But quite often, I will hit the bottom within the week of having the idea, and I'll be like, damn, thought that was a good one, but no. Do those ever become short stories? No. I, you always think these ideas are going to be recyclable, but um, almost never. You said you had the relationship of Clee and Cheryl when you were sitting down there. Did you have open palm? Did you have the creepy guy who she has a crush on, Philip? Did you have the uh, color therapy man <laughs> and his right. whatever she is? Right, right. His uh, receptionist <laughs> slash, yeah. Um, <laughs> I didn't have any of that. I mean, the kind of magic of the process to me is that so many of those things initially came out of trying to solve problems. Like, how do I get from here to here? Or how do I show this? And in doing that, I I never want to go a direct route. I often head right away from point B, like on purpose. I'll be like, okay, I'm trying to get from A to B. Why don't I go the wrong way and see how I can get to B from there? Give an example of what you mean by Um, that. That would be useful. 
I, okay, I don't have a clear one from the book, but it'll be like this. Like, I have a problem, you know, in the writing, which will be something just like, how do we know that Cheryl has some pride in herself or something? You know, like, how right. is she not just this humiliated woman? And instead of thinking like, well, what what are things people have pride in? You know, instead of thinking about pride, I'll just let my mind totally go on whatever. And and it could even be like something in my surroundings that interests me. Like, okay, that chair looks so sad. That chair reminds me of, you know, something from my childhood, whatever. And then I'm like, okay, I'm headed down a road. I feel something about it. I don't know how it's going to connect up with pride, but I know that if I go long enough on it, it will, because that's like the intention I set. So this is a serendipitous thing where you have to kind of trust that eventually that circle will lead back to where you're going. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I've done that process for so long on so many different scales. With a novel, it's like so tiny and intimate. It all happens within myself. But, you know, I did that with the future. And I wrote a whole book about that process in a way with a book called It Chooses You. Would that be kind of getting back to your older movie, You, Me, and Everyone We Know, starting with the woman who's going to be viewing the performance art and the little kids playing on the computer, and somehow you come around to the little boy sitting on a park bench with the woman. Right, right. I know that with with that movie, I remember thinking, like, this is very ambitious to try and make a feature. I can't pretend that I can come up with some grand story. What I can do is make some short movies <laughs> and put them together in a really good way. I mean, I'm sure I used that process, that kind of serendipitous process. But yeah, I was kind of very consciously putting things that didn't go together together. And just seeing how it how it mashed. Is that yeah. easier in a screenplay, you think, than a novel, or is it the same? Well, I think I've gotten better at it. I mean, I remember it seeming, the, the idea of creating an arc out of stories just seemed next to impossible when I was making that first movie. But that's because... I wasn't even concerned with narrative up until that point. Not really. I didn't I never really thought about it that hard. Now I'm pretty interested in narrative and like, you know, why does someone want to turn the page when they're reading a book rather than just put it down, which is so tempting. That's very different than working on a short story collection because you know that, you know, instead of taking little side trips, you're on a highway. Right, exactly. It's a whole different thing. In a way, with a short story, you don't want them to turn the pages too fast because it'll be over. Like, you're not concerned with speed in the same way. Let's look at a couple of elements of The First Bad Men, Miranda July. You have Cheryl Glickman, this, I guess you'd call her a semi-reliable narrator. In the end, she's more reliable than we thought she was. But early on, for all we know, everything is happening around her and she's not aware of anything. Right. She's not a knowing, worldly person. And then we have the place she works at, Open Palm, which is kind of a new agey thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, I grew up in this publishing company that my parents ran in their house. And so... What was the name of the publisher? North Atlantic Books still exists, still here in Berkeley, but not in our house anymore. Um, and and so the idea of a of a couple who ran a company, I mean, it's not a huge part of the book, but it's so familiar to me. I liked the idea, but it would seem too much about me if I made it a publishing company. So it took me a while to get to the self-defense. And the color therapist? Yeah. 
I remember going into a natural food store, Air One, in L.A., and they there was someone there doing free tests of, like, what you were deficient in, and I was deficient in red. Um, <laughs> and then I could buy some red. I wish I had bought it. But it just stuck in my mind. I mean, at the time, I was like, I think I am. I can feel how that's true. And and I don't think it's untrue. I mean, I don't have a mocking tone in this. I grew up in Berkeley. I'm pretty sure my dad publishes books on, like, color therapy. It's more just a familiar material to work with. The uh, relationship between the color therapist and the other therapist did that just come from the writing or was that somewhere before you sat down and wrote? Right. I sat down for like an hour and I remember coming out of the room and saying to my husband, you'll never guess what just happened. Like the most insane thing about the, you know, this receptionist or this therapist is not what she seems. She's um, has kind of like t- two lives, um, which was a total, I mean, it's so corny when writers say that, how surprised they are by their characters, but it was a nice moment like that. Does that happen a lot? Did that happen in writing the two screenplays too? Yes. It happens, I think, to everyone. Your goal is to be like working as hard as you can craft-wise, but doing all that work so that gifts can be given to you. If you really are willing to be surprised and not in control completely, but you're on your toes, you're completely alert, nothing's going to get by you, then I think it is like a constant process of discovery. The relationship between Clee and uh, Cheryl, which gets a little bit strange as it goes along, again, when you were first thinking about those characters, was that, again, one of those spontaneous things that just kind of happened on that road? I did know that there'd be, I think it's safe to, it's okay to say that there would be both violence and uh, and and sex and hate and love. And that th- I knew all that would be in there. That was it. That was like the the bullet I was hit with or something. That was the wound of the book. Not that I had it all sorted out, but that was quite emotional to me from the start. And uh, yeah, it never stopped being. I mean, most days I thought, well, this writing is horrible, but I still am really interested in these people. During the writing of the book, you gave birth, right? I did. Yeah. I, I started really sitting down and writing when I was pregnant, and I finished when my son was two. So I was more or less in a kind of physically altered state the whole time. I mean, you know, I was breastfeeding. I was, to, you know, I was, I've never made anything from that physical place before. The second half of the book, there's a baby in it. And the question arises, how do you keep yourself from going, oh, no, I'm just kind of writing what's happening with me and my baby? Exactly. I'd already had the idea for the baby well before I got pregnant. So it wasn't like, I just can't help myself but write about babies, babies, babies. You know, it was part of the structure. And indeed, for the first few months of being a mom, I wrote tons of stuff and and felt certain that it all had to be in the book and was already very conflicted about doing press about the book and that it would all be too close to my actual son. And all of that sorted itself out. And what, what remained in the book was more like a a pulse, like a, this person probably did have a child <laughs> kind of feeling, you know, but all within a fiction. 
You're listening to an interview with Miranda July, whose novel is called The First Bad Men. I'm Richard Walensky on Bookwaves. What does the title mean? There is a point where, for a moment, The First Bad Man is Clee, and it's a moment in the book where Cheryl, the narrator, kind of tells the whole story. She describes like that Clee's like the sort of bad man who comes into town and makes a lot of trouble and then leaves. The moment right before a whole lot of generative, transformative stuff happens. And and so I thought it was nice. It seems like such a declarative big title, but it's actually, when you read the book, named after a fleeting moment that's just kind of the, the cusp before big change. So anyone reading the book should be be aware that there's going to be a point where that title just jumps at you. Yeah. And I also like that it's like, well, it's a manly title. It has the name. Man- it's like so misleading. And I feel like that's somehow fitting for the book. There's a lot that appears to have been sort of autobiographical. Looking at a couple of interviews you gave, you talk about when you were single, that a lot of Cheryl's behavior as a single person kind of came out of your own background. Yeah, I know. I think somewhere along the way I gave a sort of misleading interview because I now now people say like, so you were single your whole life until you met your husband. And my husband's like, I love that story. Yes. The answer is yes. (laughs) And I've actually sort of never been single, but I've always lived alone until I met my husband. I kind of really protected that kind of lonely world of someone living alone, kept people, I guess, at a bit of a distance. Did uh, you only have one set of plates? (laughs) <laughs> no, but I did a lot of that stuff. I still do. I mean, it's it sounds so weird when you write it all down, but like we actually do do a lot of those things. And and certainly when I'm at work, you know, I have a little studio. Like I do eat directly out of the pan. I don't put it in a bowl. What I've learned over the years living with people and living alone is that the more you live alone, on some level the weirder you can get. Yeah, it's completely lawless. Yeah. And the older you are when you shack up with someone, the more you're like a weird... I I feel like I am almost like a a married bachelor or something, you know. Miranda July, I want to put the first bad man in the context of all of your work. And I was kind of jotting down notes. It seems that a lot of your work is about the nature of communication, how people deal with each other. And the other thing is you're very interested in what could be called interactive art. The thing about a a novel on the surface is that it's not interactive, or is it? I know. With the movies and the novels, I mean, they're very straightforward forms, you know, and I'm not doing anything particularly experimental with them. And I do like that. You know, I like the classic. I'm a reader. Like, I'm a reader, and I like to watch movies, and I enjoy being a participant in that. That said... There's all this stuff that I want to engage in, yeah, that resists the form. And so, I, yeah, I do it in what I just broadly call art, but takes all different forms. You have a uh, book called A Book and a Website, Learning to Love You More, which involves people writing to you, I guess, writing various assignments. Me and the artist Terrell Fletcher made 70 assignments that are online that are for the public to do. And and for the seven years that the site was active, like more than 10,000 people did these assignments and all of them are online. It was a completely like non-judgmental 
space. So, and and they're like write your life story in less than a day is the an example of an assignment. So um, some amazing things came out of the, that project, which is why we made the book of it. And now the site itself is in the archive of SF MoMA. Well, that goes back to something you did called Joni for Jackie. Right. Now we're going back even farther. That's the project I started when I dropped out of UC Santa Cruz. Yeah. And there was like almost no women in my film class at, at Santa Cruz at that time. And Joni for Jackie was a really simple distribution network for short movies made by women where I would kind of compile them on tapes. I'd ask women to send me their short movies, and then I'd send them back a tape with their movie and nine other movies on it made by women. And I made um, about 15 of these compilations. And, you know, this is pre-YouTube. So it was like a very labor-intensive way to create a community in a sense that I wasn't alone, that there was a context within which to think of myself as a filmmaker. Well, when you were editing it together and looking at these different pieces, just as with the the uh, website, are you also kind of trying to see whether one piece on some level communicates with another one? I consciously made them very uncurated because I was accepting them all. And I may have even just put them on in the order that I got them. I may have done some curation, but I was really interested in an idea of kind of removing the, the concept of talent from the whole thing and thinking, what are all the reasons you might want to make a movie other than getting famous, you know, or going to Hollywood? Like, what other purpose might it serve as a young woman? Most of them were young women. And a lot of it was about kind of intimacy. And in a way, these women didn't want huge audiences. Like it was enough just to share something very personal with a few other women. So it was a pretty radical space. I mean, now that I am like living in LA and like the quote unquote real film business is all around, like that idea only gets better to me, you know? (laughs) That brings up a point. I mean, all of your work, the EPs, the LPs, the short films, the long films, the novel, the short stories are all very uniquely you. They don't fit into a pattern. They're what you want to do. How do you maintain that in the face of, let's face it, Hollywood? I mean, it was only really an issue in one instance. Like, you know, I'd been making work for like 10 years when my first movie, Me and You and Everyone We Know, came out and there was this moment where people in the biz offered like you can have this much money if you make a movie with us and and that's their job is to find the person or the people at Sundance every year to make that offer to and parlay them into like a studio movie. I remember very consciously thinking no I'm going to use this moment to get a publisher for my book of short stories And the reason I'm going to do that is I don't want to just be an indie filmmaker just because of the fact that this was seen by more people than my performances or or anything else I was doing. Like, that's not comfortable to me. I already felt miserable in a way just from it felt like a role, you know, like not that it wasn't true, but it wasn't true without all the other pieces. So the next few years felt like like I was working really hard to expand that space and make it comfortable for me, which made it not look less comfortable for other people, you know. Well, you did wind up making a second feature, though. Yeah, that, that was always the plan. And I'm, you know, working on my third feature now. 
it's like inconceivable that you wouldn't just want to do the next one right away, that anything could be more important, especially something less flashy. The great thing about writing a novel or a short story or putting something online is it's basically you. You don't have to really rely on anybody. Yeah, there's a publisher at one end, but at, by that point, it's written. It's done. When you're dealing with film, you're dealing with the fact that you have to probably have to deal with millions of dollars worth of a budget. You have to get the people involved. You have to deal with the actors, which is probably the fun part in the film. But there's all of this surrounding stuff. Oh, I know. The book was so lovely to make. <laughs> Every project is torturous, but this was just my personal inner torture. You know, I wasn't like making mistakes in which someone would have to get fired or I misspent money or, you know, like, yeah, and I much prefer that. I rise to the challenge of it all being on my creativity, period. But it sounds, Miranda July, that you started out at Santa Cruz wanting to be a filmmaker because you went to film school. Right. It's true. It's true. <laughs> that was my first idea in high school of what I would be. And I never let go of that. I mean, it's partly the times that it wasn't I didn't have like a camera lying around to start making movies. My instinct is to never go towards a structure that already exists or any kind of authority figure or something. So I thought, well, what can I do right now? I can basically make a movie that's not shot. <laughs> I can make a live movie, which is how I started putting on plays at Gilman Street. And I was very much thinking of them as, as cinematic. I mean, I knew I wasn't, like, going into the theater. And that was just my approach to it. And then, yeah, you know, and then I didn't choose a, a film school. I mean, they didn't even actually have a film department at that point. Once you left Santa Cruz, how did you begin the entire film career so that you would get somebody to put up the money for you, me, and everyone else? You know, I started with a, a movie called... Atlanta that was 10 minutes that I shot on with a borrowed camera. I played both parts. I shot it myself, sent it to film festivals and did that. You know, I made six short movies, each one getting a little longer. And the whole time I was making these performances that were actually feature length. They were so complex and required the understanding of like what it takes to hold an audience's attention. And so in truth, when I pitched my movie to IFC, the lucky, lucky break was that someone from IFC had seen me perform. And she actually said, like, I think she can do this. Like, I think she can pull it off, not based on her short movies, but more based on her performances. At that point, did you have a screenplay? I did, yeah. I had a screenplay, and that was the other thing. I mean, people thought it was funny. You managed to get a couple of very good actors in it, and you, you got to act yourself. Yeah, and I shouldn't leave out that I did my one normal and formal move was to apply to the Sundance Film Lab, which, you know, like the punk in me was kind of like, like, thought that thought they were the man kind of you know and and like I got rejected and I was like screw that and then I, but I kept applying I think some part of me knew like this is too big a leap you know I don't know a single person who's like made a feature like I need to know someone and and that was the you know through them I met uh, you know a first-time producer and we became kind of allies and set out looking for money together. So I wasn't completely alone. 
John Hawk was in it. This is before he was in Deadwood, I guess. He was in Deadwood at the same time, I remember, because we had to keep his hair the same as it was in Deadwood. <laughs> so how, how did you get him? I mean, at that point, no one had ever thought of him as like a leading man yet. So it was mutual. He came, he auditioned. I had many, many auditions before that point, you know, not stars, but all good actors. And I remember like, yes, okay, this guy has a sort of rawness where you feel like you're not sure what's going to happen next. And that's just built into him. And I was so excited. Um, But he was too, you know, it was like a romantic lead. Like he, you know, I think he'd been cast as like a scrawny, weird, you know, like people hadn't seen that, that he could carry a movie. Yeah. How for you was it directing yourself when you're in a film? First one, I didn't think about it too much. I'd been doing it with my short movies and my performances. No one had ever directed me before, so I wasn't like I lost anything that I had. Yeah, I knew my lines because I'd written them. I really didn't think about it too much. Well, there's also the meta moment when you're doing your performance art in front of a camera Right, in front of you on stage. It's like three steps removed. There's Miranda, there's the character, but it's all kind of one. It's funny. I had never had a character in any of my performances or, or, you know, I wrote most of those short stories before I wrote that movie. And I never had any, like, young hip girl character for the most part. I had one short story with that. So it was a little bit of a crisis when I was making the movie. I thought, well, I have to be in it because that's the only way I can conceive of it at this point. But it's not like my performances where I can play like a man and a baby and an old woman. Like, no one's going to buy that. (laughs) (laughs) I need to actually play someone just like me, because I'm also not like a great actress. That's, you know, I I didn't want to have to like play like a working class British woman or, you know, show off my chops (laughs) that I wasn't sure I had. So that was the first. It was a, a weird thing to me, like that it had this arty hipster girl that was kind of embarrassing like but it it was like a way in and in the end I guess it made it more accessible did that open the door to you to think about hey you know I'm gonna act in other things because you have acted in things including Portlandia yeah just because that's like one of my oldest friends occasionally people will ask and I always psych myself out of it Um, it's always an intriguing idea but it never is on the front burner You know, honestly, it's like more and more I see what really great actors are like, and it's it's a different quality. I mean, I'm interested in it, but it's it might not be me. You know, like they're really they're so pliable. (laughs) Do you see any role models out there? People like Laurie Anderson? Yeah, I listened to Laurie Anderson. I'd say like Laurie Anderson, Patti Smith, Cindy Sherman, uh, the artist like those people were certainly all in my consciousness when I was in my, like, mid-20s. Miranda July, your most recent work, more recent than The First Bad Man, is something called Somebody, which is a real app? It's a real app. Although I should say right now you can't download it, but in a couple months it'll be back out again. I'm working on it as we speak in between interviews. It's a messaging app. You can send a message through it, but the message that you type, you know, let's say I'm trying to send you a message, well, you would get it from a stranger who comes up to you and verbally tells you the message standing in for me. So they would say, you know, it could be like, whatever, a young boy, and he would say, Richard, it's me, Miranda. 
And then he would say the message, uh, perform it, ideally. So it's not at all efficient. It's not like the quickest or necessarily most accurate way to send a message. But it gives you something else that's not that easy to get, which is this kind of giddy feeling of interacting with a stranger in a kind of intimate way because your friend is sort of channeled through them. Why? (laughs) Um, I love that feeling personally. I mean, I, I avoid all different kinds of intimacy, but nonetheless, when I actually do have some kind of fleeting interaction with a stranger, that's thrust upon me because I usually wouldn't choose that. Um, I I do get a kind of high from it and a, and a kind of like oneness with humanity type feeling. But it also feels, dare I say it, passive aggressive that I can be with someone, say, let's say I want to break up. And <laughs> I send a little thing saying, I'm breaking up with you. And then I send it to the little old lady who's <laughs> sitting next to that person on the bench And the little old lady turns and goes, hi, I'm Richard. I'm breaking up with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that would be one way to use it. It's all on you. And and, yeah, people have used it for secret declarations of love. This has already become a short film, correct? Right. Yeah. It started out really as like sort of a fictional idea in a short film. And the idea was that the film would end with this link and that you could actually download this seemingly fictional app. Well, you could actually then turn it into a very, very strange movie, full length. (laughs) I'm hoping that movie will be like documentary or or just real life because it didn't work that well in its first incarnation. I didn't know what I was doing. Um, Turns out it's really complicated to make an app like that and making it again and relaunching it. And, you know, it should have a chance to evolve to its fullest, you know, potential. One thing I've noticed in your work is a knowledge that we're living in a very different communication age than previous generations. Right. Yeah. And even our relationship to our own alone time. I mean, I I think in a way that app really came out of thinking about like, okay, increasingly you can do everything from your computer. You know, you don't have to go to the store. So, you know, you buy everything on Amazon in theory, that's supposed to allow you more time to do what you really care about, like be with your loved ones or take a walk in nature. But you don't do that because the muscle that's strong is the buying things online muscle. So you use all the time that you saved just buying more things online or just you know being in front of your computer. And in a way, it's hard to break out of that. And so though it's an app, though it is technology, it was I sort of saw it as like a portal, like it could lead you out into the real world. And, you know, if you're delivering a message, well, you're forced to look around at who's around you. And you have a very, you know, a sense that everyone might be the one, you know, you're looking for this one stranger. It sounds as if what you're trying to do is kind of overcome the insular nature of electronic devices. I mean, trying to break that bond in a way by using those devices? I guess the main thing I feel is like we can't just buy them and get addicted to them and have our life reshaped by technology. Like we also have to think of what we might want and push back a little. Like we're at the very, really very beginning stages of all this. And like we can shape which way it goes, but you actually have to 
be conscious of it to do that. And that's really the hardest part. So if anything, it's it, it could just be an idea that you hear about, like, you know, listeners might hear about it and you just think about it a little bit. And maybe that's the piece. You know, you don't use it. You just it's useful as something to think about. Basically, it, it forces us to even hearing about the bizarre nature of this forces us to kind of think about what the hell are we doing with these things? Right. And what might I want, you know, on a given day? You have a character in The First Bad Man, not a real character, a baby that doesn't really exist named Kabelko Bondi. And I was looking through your list of favorite books, and there's a photography book by someone named Friedel Kabelka. Is there a relationship between those? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've been busted. Um, I knew it was only a matter of time. Um, but I, I didn't want to hide that. I was looking at this book. At one point, her name was Fried. Her first name is Friedel. She's an Austrian artist, probably in her uh, 70s, maybe. Uh, she's a great artist. I really admire her work. And her name at one point was Friedel Kubelko, no, Kubelka dash Bondi. I think it was like two different husbands or something. And uh, I got that stuck in my head. It's an, it's an amazingly rhythmic name, Kubelka Bondi. So I, you know, I, I changed it to an O and just never looked back until now. Um, <laughs> I'm wondering if we even like cleared that or, you know, how that's going to go. 11 heavy things. Now, this was a a sculpture you created in Venice. Mm -hmm. The purpose of it was to get tourists to take pictures and send them to you? Not to me, but to each other. I mean, I, I guess what I was looking at was, you know, what already exists that I can kind of make use of in the realm of performance. And one way that that we all perform is when we see anything like a big rock or a statue, we stand in front of it and we pose and we ask that, you know, our friend take our picture. And it's this little performance that we do. And then we send it and we're like, look at me by this big rock. And so I thought, well, all I have to do is create the heavy things. You know, I put captions on them to kind of add a little bit of voice to it. Um, like there's one that's three pedestals that say the guilty one, the guiltier one, the guiltiest one, and you can stand on the pedestals. And the point was, and, and it worked, people would take pictures of each other and then send the pictures or put them online. And, and then in a way, the photographs would be the work. When you're creating these, do you, do you ever think, you know, well, I'm kind of worried that somebody might see this as mocking or satire, or do you try just as in your writing to just kind of keep those ideas away because they might distract you from your work. Yeah, I I mean I'm not that into satire and I'm certainly never mocking. It's just not my way. I mean, I feel like I'm like this open, you know, very open person making themselves vulnerable and so what I hope is that it's kind of met like that and that you take a leap into it making yourself kind of vulnerable too. There's also, as I was going through your website, something about a pocketbook. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I had this long book to write, and sometimes it gets a little bleak. And, and so when I, I got an email from a, a woman who makes purses, like really quite beautiful kind of old-fashioned bags in, in L.A., and she said, you know, I want to do a namesake bag, kind of like the Birkin 
bag, and I want you to be the, the name. I liked it, but I also had like, I was like, this is just too frivolous. And so I asked if we could do a limited edition that kind of went over the top with the idea of a, a personalized bag. And so that bag is filled with little pockets and compartments and things that only I would really want. So it's not that useful as a bag. It's more like a, a piece of art. From my perspective, it was more like a, a very funny short film. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> which is on your website. Which right, right. Website. I, yeah, I made a movie of it too. Uh, where did the name July come from? That name originated in this town when uh, me and my best friend in high school, Johanna Fateman, we had a fanzine that we made together, and sh- she would write these stories about two characters named Ida and July, and I was July. And so I just added that on. Although, you know what? Since I am here, I will say that there was a radio host also. I think it was probably on, what's the college? Calix? Calix, yeah. Yeah, sorry. But um, named Irene July. And maybe that's where Johanna got it from. Like, we thought she was cool. So, uh, I mean, I've never admitted that, but I'm here. And to me, you know, the meaning of it came that it, it was that it was from my best friend. And at the time, it was like, yeah, you don't take your father's last name. You take your your best girlfriend's last you know name that she gives you. Like, that seemed like kind of a radical feminist idea. Clee, uh, where did that name come from? That is the name of my husband's sister's husband's mother. Okay. And True. is there such a thing as a global Globus Hystericus? Yes. Globus Hystericus is, is like a perpetual lump in the throat. And I, I did have that. And I went to the doctor and she said, yeah, you have Globus Hystericus. Here's some Xanax, which wasn't really a long-term solution. But, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's a weird world. If you look it up, it goes deep, the, the message boards on that. Miranda July. Now, the book has come out, The First Bad Men. Uh, you, Me, and Everyone We Know can be seen um, Netflix streaming. The future can, can too, is not streaming. It's, uh, it is? It's oh, ju- you have to okay. You have to get the uh, look. The I disc. looked. <laughs> okay, okay. I have no idea. <laughs> if, if it had been streaming, I'd have watched it. Yeah. Um, what have you got coming up? What are you working on? Well, there's this performance, New Society, that I'll I'll do at the end of April here through San Francisco. Film Festival and SFMOMA are are co-presenting it. I'm doing a big public art project in London that that that's not that won't happen till next year, but I'm working on it now. And then I'm working on a on a screenplay. Yeah, I'm at the very early stages of what will one day, many years from now, be my next movie. Do you see yourself doing more acting in film just to make a living? Uh, no. And I don't think I mean to be honest, I I pretty much only make money from the books. Probably the only significant change I made um, when I became a mom was I got an agent so that I could, a speaking agent so that I could charge for for talks, you know, um, because I realized like, oh, that's, that's what a lot of writers do for kind of bread and butter because, you know, your book advance only lasts so long. The other thing is that as you get better known, I mean, the purpose of getting better known is not for the accolades. It's so that you can have the window to do what you want to do, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel lucky in that respect. I mean, in fact, even when I wasn't 
really making quite enough money to get by. I felt I felt like, well, I've got my freedom. I am paying my $300 rent up in Portland. Like, I've got it made. That's all I've been trying to maintain. It seemed like if, if I can just do that for my whole life, I'm good. Miranda July, whose novel The First Bad Man is now available in trade paperback, You and Me and Everyone We Know is available streaming on Netflix, and The Future is available on DVD. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.